wearing my special hat this morning. And uh, you might be asking, why are you wearing this hat? You do not normally wear a hat on Sunday morning. And I would tell you, because I want to, number one, and because yesterday we went to the rodeo. And who went to the rodeo? It was awesome. <laughs> I decided, I like, I don't like make, like we have like, over the years we've tried to have um, develop a type of um, leadership that every, no decision is made autonomously and every decision runs through multiple people. Um, because it's better, better that way usually. And, uh, but I made an autonomous decision last night um, after the rodeo that we should also have a two-step uh, night for the church where we go find somewhere to do some country dancing. So just look for that because I'm going to be pushing for that one to come down the pipe. The sinful stuff. Yeah. I'm actually going to take off my hat because I feel like it's like distracting me while I'm thinking, all right, my hair will be fine. Um, I ride I ride my bike to to work now, as I mentioned, and um, and so whenever I show up at the coffee shop, I have that helmet hair. I pull off my sweet helmet and get under the mirror and brush it out at the coffee shop. So, yeah, I'm used to my hair looking dumb right now. Um, so, the Lord's put this phrase in my heart, and it's like sometimes. Sometimes, like, God teaches us, like, like normally, like, he's teaching us various things. He's working on various things. Sometimes, over the years, both for me personally and in sermons, and I would say that most of the time if I'm preaching, I'm preaching either kind of what we're reading through as a family, the scripture, or something that God is just, like, banging into my head. And right now, it's one of those things where, Every day is the same message with the Lord. I shared this with you this last week. The, the Lord has just put this in my heart and mind, and I'm, I want to keep saying it. I probably will say it a number of weeks in a row because I just feel like it's important for us. And the, the uh, question is, what does obedience look like right now? What does obedience look like right now? I actually hadn't thought about this till this very moment, but I can trace to you, um, there's... You know, anytime you, like, look at something that God is working on you, you can, like, look back to a hundred other things that led to this. One of the things that led to this is, as I've mentioned, I run an investment business. We work with early-stage companies. And one of the things that's happening right now is that in the tech world, all these valuations have come down because there are certain tech companies in the public markets, if you follow investing at all, that they're, they didn't meet up to standards, and so all of their, you know, their way they trade publicly came way down. So because of that, in the world of private investing, um, it's harder for companies to go out and raise capital. And so we've been asking this question right now, because like long-term speculation of tell me this beautiful, wonderful story doesn't sell as much anymore. We've been asking this question that I felt like the Lord gave us to in our diligence, which is, you know, not what is not what are your last steps, but what are your next steps? And so you might, might have a conversation with a founder about what are you doing? Like I like I want to have this perception when I'm investing of how focused is this person? So maybe they say, well, right now we're working on our sales strategy. I'm like, so tell me, what are you doing tomorrow that 
that's on your sales strategy. And if you double click far enough, you know, you know how you like double click, you get further into it. You double click far enough, you can find out if they're feeding you a line of trash that's just sounds good or if they're actually working on things. And so this sort of line of thinking, I felt like God started like, he's like, hey, Jordan, like I also want to take you through this. And so the Lord has been over the last number of weeks is he's been asking me the question of what does obedience look like right now? Because we all have the concept of what we're going to do for God and how we're going to follow him when all the pieces come into place in our perfect you know, masterpiece picture. But that doesn't happen. That's one thing I've learned. It, it might for you, but it doesn't happen by you waiting to do things. Like God, God is a, he's a God of, I'm speaking right now and I'm leading you right now. I'm not just leading you in 10 years when everything works out. I'm leading you right now. And so the Lord has been asking me this question. Now, I think I told you the story, but I'll retell it just to frame because this story, um, lots of, of other things became catalyzed by this for me in this. We, we were praying. Andrew and I got into this argument over, over our vehicle situation. We drove one car for a while. Um, and I was like, I just like, we, our budget can't support it. I was like, but if the Lord wants us to, you know, ha- have a vehicle, I want to know exactly the one he wants for me to have. And I ended up buying this electric bike. Um, that was my vehicle. And so now, I'd, like, as I mentioned, I don't, have a, I don't have a payment on that thing, and I had to pay no gas. Um, but I look a little bit, you know, nerdy riding down the street in my, you know, with my cool helmet and my backpack and my electric, electric bike. But the interesting thing is, like, God brought a lot of, he brought a lot of newness out of that one situation. There were, like, a series of things where God was calling us to obedience and that was one of them. And it was about what, is, what, is dot, what does obedience look like right now? And so I've been asking this question almost every day. And w- one day when I asked this question, I wrote down a list of things that I had not gotten done that I needed to get done. You know, it was mainly business stuff. And there were a number of things that I had been sort of like, ah, I don't know if I want to deal with that right this point. And I just wrote them all out and just started just knocking them out. And that was what one day it was like, go play with your kids. Okay, Mario Kart it is. Obedience for the day, boom. And, um, and so this is, but this is where my head's at. And I just want to have us camp here. Like, what does obedience look like right now? Um, it's one of my, one of the most interesting things that founders of companies will do when you ask them questions about investing. I'll ask them like, a que- one of the questions I asked them is, what can make your company fail? And sometimes people give me like, well, the market, this. When you, you know a really honest person when they tell you something that's related to them. When they say, well, I could not execute or I could not follow through or I could not, like, they start, talking to you, and I, 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 my thinking is, if they don't have something that could cause their business to fail that's in their hands, they either aren't aware of it or aren't telling me, and I don't like either of those outcomes, <laughs> and so, so my point is, what, what it is sometimes when we think everything is not right here, what we can respond to is it's like we get into this victim relationship with life where we're, we're waiting for things to like perfectly line up 
And then, right then, that's when we'll be able to have flourishing. That's when we'll be able to have obedience. Um, And I feel like God is asking me the question, you know, not what does obedience look like when, but what does obedience look like right now? Everybody cool with that? So um, I wrote a paper, or not a paper, I wrote a, I'm not writing any papers right now in school, um, but I wrote a, a prayer, a trust prayer about a month ago, and it was prompted by a John Wallace sermon. And I, when I wrote this prayer, what I, what I wanted was not just the sentiment of trust, but the practice of trust in God. I think like a lot of times, we have this emotional sentiment. How many of you, I mean, I, and I think this is really valuable. How many of you like feel a sentiment of trust with God? And you feel a sentiment of trust sometimes with people. But there's a difference in a sentiment of trust and a practice of trust. And so I've been asking God for that. And that prayer came from Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, which we won't camp here the whole time, but I want to read it to you and just talk, make a few comments about it. Um, We've read it a number of times recently. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Um, Now, I'm going to tell you one thing that I've done bad at in this verse and one thing I've been doing decent at. Over the years, one thing I have gotten pretty good at, like at times, and times not, but I've gotten better. We'll just say I've gotten better at this. I've gotten better at acknowledging God in all, in all my ways. Like, my kids get annoyed with me. Like, we, maybe we're taking a walk, we see a flower, and I'm like, the sun is 90 million miles away, and God has created it so that the light will shine down in it, and photosynthesis will turn it into energy that will supply the rest of the plant with life, and God is amazing. And, and my grace is like, speech dad stop and so it's you know if you open your eyes like God is everywhere he's working everywhere and but one of the things that I often don't do good at is is um is not leaning on my own understanding You, you know what I mean like Sometimes it's easy to acknowledge God and yet still depend heavily on your own understanding. Um, Whether it's like trying to figure out a budget issue, whether it's trying to figure out like what next steps are in life or business or whatever whatever it is you're doing. And and so I want to read a passage this morning that's actually from from our Abiding Life Journal. And it kind of gives us a context of how I believe that the gospel and God, Jesus, confronts our understanding and works within our understanding, but primarily confronts our understanding. And it's something that we don't think about very often. So so I'm going to read to you from John 4. And Jesus has just come from a Samaritan village. His primary like focus of ministry on earth was to his people, to the Jews. He, the Samaritans were like ethnically half Jewish, um, but, but through some 
political and war issues in a couple centuries before they were they were not considered Jews. And so Jesus visited this this Samaritan village and they had a particular response to his message. Um, and then he comes to back to back to Galilee to his own people. And here's here's what uh, anyway, I'll just read it and we'll go through it. After the two days, he left for Galilee. So after the two days in Samaria, he left for Galilee. This is a key phrase. I'm going to point out two key phrases. You can remember it, and I'll keep reading. This is a key phrase right here. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Key phrase. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more, he visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man had heard Jesus had arrived in Galilee for Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Next key phrase. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, come, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then his father realized that it was at this exact time that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so the whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Okay, so two phrases that we're going to look at. And I'm not going to be super long this morning, but I want to look at two phrases from this. The first phrase is Jesus saying, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So I think this is important to note here. What Jesus does not say is, I'm a prophet coming to my own country and you do not honor me. That is what's happening. He is coming to his home country. He is a prophet and they aren't receiving him the way they should. They do welcome him, but they don't fully believe him. What he says is he's making a general statement. He said a prophet, a person who carries the words of God, a person sent by God, is um, is not honored in his hometown. So he's making a statement uh, that's bigger than just himself. Let me ask you this question. What, What happened when Joseph had dreams? She yelled out. What happened when Joseph had dreams about going to leadership and him sharing that with his brother and the rest of his brothers and the rest of his family. Yeah, they didn't they weren't excited about it. Like they they were offended and ultimately they did they did try to kill him. Um, and one brother was like just throw him in a hole and we'll send they sold him into slavery. And so that's what happened to Joseph. Um, another one is King David. Uh, King David was appointed by Samuel as king, and then he hears about Goliath and Goliath taunting Israel. And so he's like supposed to bring his brother's food. He goes out there. 
I'm sure they're already jealous, like he's been appointed king. He goes out there with the food, and he, uh, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that we are allowing to defy the armies of the living God? And he's like, I will fight him. And it actually, it, what it says is his brother was angered at his presence. Like he was, it was like he was, I don't know, like he, he, got, he just got angered at, at this thought of his little brother thinking, who are you? that you think God's is sending you to do this. He even goes to the king, and the king's like, you can't win. Ultimately, the king lets him go out, and, he's, and he slays Goliath. But his brothers, like they're like, you're my little brother. You aren't anyone special. You aren't going to defeat this king. Um, I mean, like, how are the prophets, as an example? How are the prophetic people received by Israel. Do you think like most of the time everybody's like, yay, Isaiah said this bad word to us. Like they're, they're very rarely received. Sometimes they're received. Here's the interesting thing confirming what Jesus says is the prophets want, if they ever kind of run into wicked kings, oftentimes they're actually received by foreign kings. Like Daniel was received by the foreign king. Joseph was received by the foreign king. It's not always the case, but oftentimes when they were brought into the court outside of their homeland, they were received in a different way. Does this make sense? So Jesus, when he says here, a prophet is without honor, is not without honor except for in his hometown, he's not just saying something about himself. He's saying something that is generally true. Um, but in, in a second... I want to ask the question, why is a prophet without honor in their hometown? But before I do that, I want to ask another question. Just This is a rhetorical question, but just think about this for a minute, and I'll, and I'll throw out my answer. Where is Jesus' hometown right now? Where is Jesus' hometown right now? Not, not like actually his hometown, but, but where is the hometown where he would be without honor? So I would, I would tell you, I think there's a, I think there's a pretty easy, easy answer to that. It's among the church. It's, it's Christians, right? Like we're the ones familiar with his words. We're the ones familiar with the scripture. We're the ones that's familiar with the way he works, his testimony. Um, this isn't like an absolute thing because Jesus is describing a principle. He's saying a prophet is without honor in their own town. He's not describing something that's 100% true every time. He's describing a principle pattern that's often true. And I would say that the, the place that is Jesus' hometown right now, the place where people might be like, a ah, un, little unimpressed, is the church. It's, it's the world of Christianity. Because we've read the stories, we've prayed the prayers, we've done the things, and we're like, yeah, we, we believe but we're often unmoved. Is, is that fair? And so the second question, which is why? Why are prophets not accepted in their hometown? Really easy answer to this, actually. It's because of familiarity. When David shows up to a battle as a little boy being led by God, and he's like, who is this you know, guy, you know, taunting us, like, I will go fight him. Like, you know, his brother who, like, 
fought with him over, you know, the toy. I don't know what kind of toy you would have as a Hebrew 4,000 years ago, but who fought with him at home, like his brother was offended at that thought and his familiarity would not allow him to perceive like God's hand on him, right? When Joseph had these dreams, their familiarity would not allow them to see, to see where God was working. And I think the, the point is, is that when we allow ourselves too much familiarity with God, we can miss God in our familiarity with God. Like this works out with his messengers, yes, the prophets, but it also works out with him. When we become so, we can, we can become acquainted with his story in a way that opens us up to the world of which the wonder that God has done, or we can become acquainted with his story in a way that feels like we have kind of figured it out and it's familiar to us. And this sort of familiarity, like our, our risk is, as Christians is missing God's work because we are often too familiar. We, we, we sometimes are a little blinded because we're kind of in hometown with our faith, we can be a little blinded to the, the surprising way in which God is at work. So, like, humility is actually the key to seeing rightly. It would have taken an enormous amount of humility. I'm an older brother, and I got a younger brother. And if my brother showed up to the battlefield when he was 16 years old, and I was... Eh, his older brother was probably older, and I was 20 and full grown. Like, and my brother's like, I'm going to go take him on. I might have been a little bit hurt, you know, like, why didn't I go? Who are you? Like, that, it, it actually does take an enormous amount of humility to let go of our familiarity and be surprised by God. Are you with me? Part of our growth, so here's the thing. Part of our growth in God Paul talks about, in Ephesians 1, he prays that the church would be enlightened, that they would have all this knowledge of God, knowledge of who he is, knowledge of their identity, knowledge of all that he's given. And so it's a prayer that's prayed in, in, the, in Peter's epistles and Paul's epistles, this prayer that you would keep growing. And so that's part of our growth. But part of our growth is actually letting go of what we think we know or we figured out and just trusting in him and not leaning on our own understanding. And so if you can't simultaneously grow in your knowledge of God and your trust of God, you're going to end up being the familiar hometown person who can't perceive where God's at work. Maturity is not only gaining understanding about God. Maturity is gaining trust in God. And understanding without trust will lead to lack of understanding. That's kind of weird that it works that way. But I'm a hundred, I could tell you by experience, I'm 100% sure when you, when you stop trusting and you keep growing in knowledge and understanding... Um, you, you, you think you've got it figured out, but you don't. Like, actually, it was funny. I'm going to sound like an like a 85-year-old complaining on their front porch. For a moment, humor me. I will be the 85-year-old complaining on their front porch. One of the things I, uh, in the business world that I 
I loathe to, to my deepest core, to my deepest core, is every time I get on LinkedIn, don't log on to LinkedIn. If you don't log on to LinkedIn, don't ever log on to it. It's, there's nothing, nothing useful there. I log on to LinkedIn, and every person I know is a thought leader about everything. Like, they're, they're, they write articles on, this is how you should start a business and lead, here's seven ways you should start a business and lead people. I'm like, that person hasn't even started a business. Like, you know, and so we have this kind of perception in our society that our understanding and our articulation of our understanding will defend us against life's issues and will establish us in sort of a good life. But, but, but kingdom growth, kingdom maturity is an increasing like childlikeness and an increasing maturity of knowing him, both at the same time. Are you with me so far? Okay, so um, God wants obedience. And if you become too familiar with his work around you, you will not be able to discern his leading. You may think that you have wisdom to discern all matters, but you will be missing the one most important thing, which is his leading. So, like, the way this works is I've actually talked about in years past the difference between holiness and commonness. So in the Old Old Testament, there are three sort of categories of things. There are, first of all, um, unclean things. So things that aren't allowed to be touched, they, you know, in the Old Testament, this would, would have been somebody with leprosy or this would have been somebody who was sinful or, you know, all these different, there was a category of unclean things. Then there was a category of common things. So like you could have a fork that is used, a utensil that's used in the temple or you could have a utensil used at the home. Which one, where is the common one used? in the home. And then you have holy things, which are things differentiated from common that are used in, in, in special, in, in very, for very special holy purposes. And the difference, the opposite of holiness is not uncleanness, it's commonness. And so one of the, one of the invitations of the priest is to distinguish that which is holy and that which is common. And what Jesus did was track with me for a second. What Jesus did was he laid hands on the leper. The people who were the religious, they weren't the ones who were called into leadership. He called fishermen. He called the common, not the Levitical people who were designated by God as his holy people. He called the common Israelite to be leader. He made all the things that were thought of as common to be holy. Because we become familiar, too familiar, we become too much of a hometowner, we often do the opposite, where we make holy things that God is doing every day simply common things. And we miss the fact that he's working in beautiful ways every day. That conversation with the child can be holy or it can be common. That lay down at night can be holy or common. That Mario Kart time can be obedience or it can be blowing the time. 
I'm reaching a little bit for words here. Um, the time with the Lord in the morning can be holy or common. Time with your friends can be holy or common. That time in the Word can be holy or common. If we're too familiar, we will miss the holy bread that God has every day. If we are to step into a life of obedience that's right now, we must have let him rip the veil of commonness and not just operate our lives without him. We must operate within the fact that he's doing holy, wonderful things leading us every single day. How many of you, God has led you in something really small, like buying a bike? How many of you feel like God's led you in something tiny? Like, what if, he, what, if, what if all of life was like that? What if, like, you're just going around like just a bucket of joy, being led by God in obedience everywhere because we, instead of making the whole world common, make the whole world holy in our perception. Let's not be the hometown Jesus people. Phrase two. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders... Jesus told him, you will, you will never believe. Okay. Just keep that phrase in your mind. For every people, every culture in the world, every group of people, um, it, this is true in our culture, this is true in every culture you ever go to, there is, and it's something actually that anthropolo anthropologists look for in cultures, but there is usually a governing authority for how, we, how things are understood and known to be true. Like, that could be a person, like in a, in a village it could be a person, um, but it's usually some sort of ruling thought. It's usually some sort of ruling thought. And here's the way Paul says it that mirrors Jesus' statement here. In 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23, he's writing to a group of people who are both both Jews and Greeks or Romans. And he says, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Now, like, the foolishness wisdom thing is pretty obvious, but the stumbling block, it's like, what does that even mean? So I started reading, like, like everywhere in the Bible talks about stumbling block, and it's almost always like kind of the opposite of a sign. Like a stumbling block is like, you know, you, like drinking alcohol in front of an alcoholic. Like this is the other time stumbling, like in the, used in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, it's all these times where what they, what they have done is so wrong that it creates offense. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus has revealed himself in such a way to the Jews that they actually encounter it as a stumbling block. Like that's a very particular phrase. And I, it's important for us to see this because the way that God works in our lives is, and just stay with me for a moment on this, the way that God works us within our, in our lives, and he says this for both Jews and Greeks, is that he confronts our frame of understanding and works within it. 
He does not just want to work within your frame of understanding. Like, he doesn't come to you speaking a language you don't understand. Like, he works in language that you understand. But he ought, the gospel, at its core, seeks to confront whatever you think is authoritative. And there are things in our minds that we see. Whatever you think is authoritative in establishing or understanding truth. It's not just the truth itself. It's the way in which the truth is established. So, let's just hang with me for a second. In this case, he's, he's, he's not affirming them. He's chastising them a little bit. He's like, you Jews, you won't believe unless there's a sign. And yet, you know what he does? Tell me, somebody tell me. He gives them a sign anyways. He, he gives them a sign anyways. And then the whole household of the man who wanted healing for his son, they all become saved. Because for the Jews, the way that they would identify a prophet is by looking for a sign. They looked for like God's work. You look throughout history, whether it was Moses or whether it was the judges or whether it was the kings. Like God looks for, like the, the, you know, the Hebrew people were looking for a sign. And so he actually goes ahead and gives them a sign. But in another, in another verse, he, he tells them, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah because you're a wicked generation. And so I just, I want to just keep pushing on this, that God works within our understanding, but he also seeks to confront our understanding. So let's back up and I want you to see the context of John 4. Right before, as I mentioned, right before this mention of Jesus, Jesus is in a Samaritan village. He encounters the woman. How many of you remember the woman at the well? He encounters this woman who's been married five times. When he sees her, he prophetically tells her, you've been married five, five times. She goes, I perceive that you're a prophet. And she ends up asking about the Messiah. He tells her he is the Messiah. She goes into this town. She invites, she tells the whole town, the entire town of what happened and then invites all of them back out to see him. And I want you to see what happens here. In John 4, 39 through 42, this is the whole town coming out after they have come out. It says, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you have said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed Christ, the Savior of the world. But I want, you to, I want to hone in on one key phrase here that's important for us. It says, many believed because of his word. Many believed because of his word. They did not believe because they saw a sign. They didn't see the sign the woman saw. They did not believe because he persuaded them. They did not believe because he made a wise argument. They would have no, nothing to do. They didn't read the same scriptures. 
He could make no wise argument with them about how the scriptures point to him. They believe because of what? His word. They believed because of his word. This is such a profound thing right here. They believed because of his word. God is not primarily calling us to lean on our own wisdom and understanding. The gospel is not. I've heard it said that primarily the gospel is not a reasoning gospel. It's a believing gospel. Like, I'm not saying it's unreasonable. At times it is. It's not always unreasonable, but at times it is. You do not encounter this and it transforms your life because you reasoned into it. It transforms your life because you believe it. And that's not how just we start. That's how all of life is supposed to be. That's how all of life is supposed to be. You know my least favorite Christianese statement in the world is? That this is a handbook to life, brother. Amen. You know what this is? This draws us into the one who authored life so that we could let go of every human rule and trust him alone and believe him alone. He did not give us a handbook to life. He gave gave us a witness of his ultimate authority and our ultimate call to depend on him and nothing else. You will not reason your way into obedience or faith or flourishing or identity in Christ. The only thing that will transform us, let me say the only thing, the highest way that we're transformed is by believing him at his word. I must admit, he conceded and gave them a sign in the situation. And I must admit that he conceded and gave Greeks wisdom. But Jesus said, greater are those who believe have not seen. The gospel is not primarily a gospel of reason. It is a gospel that you believe. It is a gospel that you believe. The the most dangerous place to be is that, let me just give a picture of this. The most dangerous place to be in your walk is to believe that if you read if you read and you spend your life in prayer and developing your spiritual maturity that you will come to a place where you will have known his 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 words enough that you can dictate in your life what is good, acceptable and true. That's that is the most dangerous place to believe the, to think that you have acquired enough knowledge that you don't need to like lean on God daily for his mercies are new that you actually have gotten enough that you just you just can do the right thing like i genuinely believe that what god calls us to i'm not saying that you don't increase in your knowledge i'm not saying you don't grow in wisdom and stature and favor you do all those things But at the end of the day, we must remain sensitive to the fact that God is still the one leading this dance. 
And he's still the one with the answers we don't have. And I have to wake up every day and experience his leading. And maybe I don't hear anything. Maybe I ask the question, what does obedience look like to this day? And I stare at a blank wall, as has happened this week a couple of times. But man, I'm going to ask. I want to trust him. I want to lean on him and not my understanding. Ain't you with me? Like, um, finish with this. Years ago, I started getting interested in, like, monastic stuff. Like, I, I started um, reading about it. I ended up writing an article called Everyday um, Monasticism. I don't know. It was like four or five years ago. On LinkedIn, yeah. <laughs> I didn't post it on LinkedIn. Here's how you do it. Um, I, I uh, had a prophetic word from a friend of mine named Julian, and he was like, I see like urban monasticism just over your life. And so this just like things have hung with me. I remember I was, I went and talked to um, my counselor some years ago. I was like, I was like, this is a really weird thing that's like been in my mind for a long time. And I can't get rid of this, this thought of like, of just monastic life. I don't, it was like, it's just constantly there. So we, we bought a home in Dallas like seven, eight years ago, eight years ago. Our first home, and if you're coming from the church, you exit St. Francis. Our second home we bought, um, which St. Francis is somebody I've read a lot, also was off St. Francis. When we got there, there was a statue of St. Francis. One day I was going to meet somebody during that time, and they were like, I felt like I was supposed to give you this song about St. Francis. And I like... I, like the business deal that when when my wife and I left VAR, we left VAR with zero way to pay our bills, like zero way. Like we were going to be significantly short. The business deal that came in, do what? <laughs> the business deal that came in uh, that supported us, like totally out of the blue, I I got invited to this, this guy, my client, he was like, I want to invite you over to my family's ranch house. We call it the, the Ranch of St. Francis. And it was just like, I could, if I had told you all the stories in which, so this is just like lingered in my thought and in my mind. And so this year, I, I had like, the thing that's unique about, I'm going somewhere with this. This isn't a total tangent. So the thing that's unique about um, monastics is that what they felt was, especially like the, during the Desert Fathers, what they felt was that the world, the systems of the world was becoming corrupt to the point that they couldn't really like live a truly holy life and they wanted to get away from it and live a holy life. And, and so there's a huge emphasis on what was sacred, what was true, what was pure, what was holy, what was right. And, you know, like St. Anthony, who I studied a deal, spent, I think, 20 years in silence. 
solitude, not just silence, solitude. Process that, you know, and, get, and God used him to speak to kings and all this kind of things. And so this is just like been in my heart and mind. But what I've always felt like was what, that not that God was like calling me to go hide in a cave and pray for 20 years alone, but that the Lord wanted to make something like that in the middle of our lives, in the middle of a city, in the middle of my own chaos. And so this picture has worked on me, it's worked on me, it's worked on me. Beginning of this year, I was like, earlier this year, I shared the story this last week. I had, we felt like that God was going to lead our community to a new space, new, uh, new, new building. And so I was like, Lord, what is it supposed to look like? And I, I, in my imagination, I saw this place that would be holy, like the monastic thing. It would like represent sacredness and beauty. And I imagined a place like with, with flat roof, like glass architecture. You could see nature. There would be trees, like, like very specific description to the, to the team. As we mentioned in our service last week, we don't have a building. Let me just mention that. We made an, we made, um, there, I won't fully explain it. There's, a, there's an opportunity that we have that could get us into the space that literally is like identical to what we had talked about and described. Now, I don't know if any of that is going to happen, but what I realize is that God works in speaking to us in little details. And if we will ask him and seek his heart, he wants to speak to us about every tiny detail in our life if we're willing. And I don't have like, I'm believing in faith that God's going to move us into the space. But if he doesn't, I'm okay. Because I know I have a recognition that God's voice is leading me. Not when I'm, when I'm, when I'm talking to him, when I'm asking the question. And so I don't know, like I, I feel like that our community, as a community, we're supposed to go on this journey of asking God the question, what does obedience look like right now? What obedience had looked like for me over those number of years wasn't trying to go figure out a perfect building. You know, that wasn't the time. What obedience was supposed to be was just keep nurturing the vision that he had put in me. And I don't, like, so I can't answer what obedience looks like in every situation. I can say that God has obedience for every person right now. And it's not just the obedience of don't do bad things. It's like the biggest, one of the biggest harms of Christianity is that we've relegated it to don't do bad things. Like he has specific obedience for us. And so I want to have a stand. I'm going to have us pray for a moment. And I, want, I just want you to ask this question with me. Sometimes, like, it helps. Like, maybe you could just ask the question, what does obedience look like right now? Like, where it started for me was we were looking for a vehicle, and the Lord, you know, or I was looking for a vehicle, and I bought a bike. And this is, it made sense for us. It made sense for our budget and our situation. Um, and, but I didn't, it wasn't my wisdom. It was, it was God's wisdom. So maybe it's something specific. Maybe you just have to ask the question in general, but I want us to just open our hands for a moment and ask the Lord the question, what does obedience look like right now? And try to remove any victim talk, 
any like, well, once this works out, once this, well, what this, like, no, what, what can, what does obedience in your practice look like right now? 